Let's pray. Father, as we're going to see in your word today, your word always does something. And so I pray today that it would soften hearts and open eyes and free up ears to hear. We ask these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're continuing our sermon series in Isaiah today, and we've been in Isaiah 6, and we've been looking at how God has triumphed uh, for Israel in triumphs of grace and how that affects our lives today. And we've seen over the last few weeks that Isaiah is living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's living amongst a very unholy, a very sinful people. And that Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations, right? This amazing vineyard in a city on a hill that all the nations would would see and come to and worship the Lord with them. But they're failing and they're failing badly because of their sin. And they're desperately twisted. And they're looking more like the pagan nations than they're looking like God's people. And so this has kind of been causing us to ask, how is God going to use this nation to bring about all of his promises that he's promised to Israel and eventually to the whole world, right? How's he going to use crooked, broken, sinful Israel to bring a triumph of grace? And so that brings us to Isaiah 6. So God calls Isaiah, and and like we've been seeing, 1 to 5 is, is sort of future to Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah 6 is kind of like a prequel. So this will kind of help some of you nerds here. If this doesn't help you, block it out. But it's sort of like how Star Wars made episode 4, 5, and 6, and then they went back and they made episode 1, 2, and 3. Isaiah 6 is like that, right? Chapters 1 to 5 are later, and chapter 1 is backtracking us to Isaiah's commission. And as we saw last week when Chris was preaching, uh, Isaiah was given a vision of the Lord high and lifted up and and there were basically burning dragons as angels flying around the throne of God crying, holy, holy, holy. And that means that God is devoted to his purposes and today we're gonna see his purposes for Israel. So we're picking up in verse eight and this takes place immediately after verse seven where Isaiah's lips are touched with a coal and he's set apart. And I'm going to break up the, if you're taking notes, I'm breaking up the sermon into, into three parts this morning, this text. Number one is, is the call, the call. Number two is the message and the response. And the third is the hope, the hope. So verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. So in this vision, if we take Chris's camera analogy from last time, now the camera pans over to God. This is the first time that we actually hear God speaking in this vision. So, so before, all we heard was the seraphim worshiping God, giving their view of God, and we heard Isaiah's response in, in repentance, and we've seen his purification, and now God is breaking into the conversation. And if, like we saw last week, when just the created angels who worship God speak, the whole temple shudders and trembles and, and shakes like an earthquake, like a, like a jet engine, right? Imagine how much more when the Lord of hosts who created these angels speaks. You could almost imagine every created thing in the temple just stopping in a, in a silent reverence, stopping their songs to listen to the Lord speak. 
to hear his words because that's the kind of God we serve. When he speaks, galaxies are born and and worlds are created. And even more miraculously, perhaps, people are sent and hearts are changed. So what does God say to Isaiah when he speaks? He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So God has a message for the people of Israel and he's, he's seeing who will be his prophet to the people. And remember, this idea of a prophet wasn't just a fortune teller, someone who could tell the future. They did give glimpses of the future, but, but the primary purpose of a prophet in this day was to show Israel where they were straying off of the covenant track. And so that's what God is asking. Whom will go for us amongst this wicked nation? Now, notice the word us here. He doesn't say whom will go for me, whom will go for us. That's plural. Maybe he's referencing the Trinity. That's a possibility. He could be referencing the angels around him, right? Because their will would be unanimous with God's will. They're his servants. It really could be both, and we're not sure. But what's important here is that the plurality implies royalty, right? It implies a majesticness and, and a weightiness to the presence of God. So, so this is very, there's a lot of gravity going on here. But what's really interesting here is Isaiah's response. So Isaiah, he just cries out, here I am, send me. And you'd almost think that Isaiah would, when the Lord starts speaking, still want to fall into the ground and die and, and hide and shame and be very afraid, right? You'd think that he would want to get out of there and not be noticed. You know, think of Adam and Eve like we were talking about in our catechism moment this morning when they realized they were in sin before a holy God. Without the temple vision, they, they hid from him in fear for their lives. And so you'd think Isaiah would be like them, but he's not. You'd think he'd want to maybe hide in the temple, but, but he pipes in, I'm your man, God, send me, right? And so what's the difference between Adam and Isaiah? Why did Adam hide and, and now Isaiah is so enthusiastic to speak before the throne of this, of this God being worshipped by burning dragons? I think it's grace, mercy, gratitude probably. Let me unpack that. No one had to coerce or convince Isaiah to go for the Lord. And, and the Lord didn't even specifically ask Isaiah to go for him. The Lord just said, who will go for us? It was a general question. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. I'll do it. I volunteer. And here's why I think that is. Isaiah was just purified by an angel just the verse before with a burning coal to his lips. Right? So his sins were taken away. His sins were washed away. And now he's pure before the Lord. And I think Isaiah understands something of that. And, and so now, instead of having filthy, unclean lips like he had before in the midst of the people of Israel, he has pure lips so he, he can speak for God. And beyond that, he understands now he's right before God. He's pure before God. He has no sin. And so he gets a little bit of boldness, I think, and rightfully so, to speak before this holy, holy, holy God. And so the passage wants to highlight this willing thankfulness that Isaiah has, right, to serve God without anyone pulling teeth or making him, just because he saw his glory and and his mercy. But at the same time, we know that our God is sovereign and that really God chose Isaiah, that God knew that Isaiah would volunteer for him and ordained that he would respond this way. And so symbolically, it's also very fitting that Isaiah go and be a mouthpiece for God now because his lips were just purified, right? They were unclean, now they're purified, so they're pure lips that can speak the words of God. And I think this shows us two things. One, it shows us that God doesn't only 
take our sins away and consider us pure in a legal sense. He, he does do that, right? He does take our sins away and consider us holier than we are. If we were considered as we are, we'd be, we'd be doomed. And he does consider us with the righteousness of Christ. But he doesn't just do that. Isaiah's lips were filthy. Isaiah was in a people of unclean lips. And now, in reality, not just in an abstract way, Isaiah's lips are pure. So when God saves us, he doesn't just consider us holy, he makes us holy. He didn't just call Isaiah holy and pretended like he was holy. He's making Isaiah holy. It, it happened for real. The second thing this shows us is that God saves his people unto something, unto something. And this is a massive blow to a lot of Western Christianity that says God saves me to save me so that me and God can have a best friend love relationship. No, God saves us unto something. So when he saved Isaiah, immediately after the next verse, Isaiah had work to do. Isaiah had a commission, right? God saves us to use us and give us work to do. He doesn't just save us to leave us static and, and still and not doing anything. And so now Isaiah has this commission. So that's the call. That's Isaiah's call. Who will go for us? Isaiah, because he so adores this God and appreciates his grace and mercy. Here am I, Lord. Send me. So now we see the message and the response. And, and I think you'll see here it was so tempting when I was making this manuscript to kind of have the message and the response as different headings, and I planned to. And as I went, you see that the response is intertwined with the message in a really fascinating way, and we're going to see that as we go through the text. So what does God say to Isaiah? Isaiah, here's what you'll say to the people. Verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on saying, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So we see that Isaiah is preaching judgment, right? This is, this is warning to the people of Israel because they're continually sinning and hardening their hearts against God and blinding their own eyes and deafening their own ears. And we also see that this message that Isaiah has to preach has, a, has an actual tangible effect on the people. It says in verse 10, make their hearts dull. That's the language that's being used here. And it's making, the language there, making their hearts dull. Think of the hardness of the heart, a stony heart. So here's an analogy. Right now, I have baby hands. I would probably be ashamed to shake some of you guys' hands after the service. Uh, I have hands that's probably smoother than my wife's right now. But when I'm working the kind of job that I usually work, I have tougher hands. I have calluses on my hands, right? And when I go back to work this summer, almost certainly I'll develop calluses. And so what's happening there is right now my fingers are sensitive. I can feel everything that touches them very much. But as calluses develop, as they get hardened, as they get dull, I can't feel anything anymore. And a lot of you guys know exactly what this is like. Or another example is my mom, she runs a restaurant and she works in the kitchen all the time and she handles really hot things and really hot dishes all the time. And so things that I would touch as a young guy and that would make me wince and cry like a baby. My mom is in the kitchen manhandling them, putting me to shame. And she, she's not even phased by it because over time in the kitchen, the heat has eventually made her hands dull, right? She's lost sensitivity there. They can't feel anything anymore. And that's the idea here behind the hearts becoming dull of the people of Israel, the message is going to make their hearts dull, and so they won't be able to feel anything anymore, and they won't be sensitive to anything anymore. 
And it's the same thing with their blindness and their deafness. They should be able to feel. They should be able to see and hear and recognize and understand and comprehend more than any nation ever because God has done more for this nation and he's revealed himself more to them. But they can't. They're only going to become harder and blinder and deafer. They're going to see nothing, feel nothing, hear nothing, and they're going to hate God more and more and more. So then Isaiah asks, verse 11, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And this is a, a great question. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to know if you were going to preach over and over and it was just going to keep falling on deaf ears and it was a seemingly useless message that nobody was going to listen to? I mean, imagine if the preaching elders of EBC kept preaching to you and, and none of you listened ever and there was no fruit. Eventually, we'd ask, Lord, how long do you want me to keep this up? Lord, you've given me this ministry. I'll serve you, but how long? This is, isn't this useless? It'd be like using a tool that... It's, it's not doing what it's meant to do. Eventually, you're going to get discouraged and toss the tool down and stop doing it because it's not doing what it's meant to do. So if we're going to keep the tool analogy going, think of it this way. If a bolt is the covenant, the covenant that God gave to Israel, and Israel's sort of like a nut that's supposed to stay fastened to that bolt. They're supposed to stay within the covenant, bound to the covenant, uh, and obey the covenant. Well, eventually... As you know, sometimes nuts start to get loose and sometimes they eventually just totally fall off of a bolt. And so we'll use a wrench to tighten it back onto the bolt. So if Israel is the nut and the covenant is the bolt and they're straying away, they're going to fall off the bolt here soon. The preaching of the prophets was sort of like a tool of a wrench that God used through the prophets to to fasten that nut back onto that bolt and and keep it there. So we can think of the, the preaching here like that sort of tool but Isaiah was just told, your wrench isn't going to work. Your wrench is broken. You're, you're going to use it, but even so, the nut is going to fall off. The people are going to stray from the covenant. They're, they're prone to wander from it. They're not going to listen. They're going to abandon the covenant. So what's going on here? Why is God giving Isaiah a useless tool? I don't think God is using a wrench here. In this case, I don't think the preaching of Isaiah is meant to be a wrench and, and, and put the people back on track with the covenant. It's meant to be a hacksaw this time. So pick up in verse 11 to 12, and God, I, uh, God tells Isaiah um, how long to preach this message for. So Lord, how long do I preach this message? It's going to be futile. And in verse 11 to 12, God says, and he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So this language is obviously describing the eventual exile that Israel was going to experience because they would not stop sinning. So the land, when they're taken away, it's going to be empty and forsaken. There's going to be houses without people. It'll be a desolate waste. And so Isaiah's preaching is going to bring this about. It's going to cause the hardness and the blindness and the deafness that is required for God to execute this judgment and send the people into exile. And so think of the vineyard analogy in Isaiah chapter 5, where God says he'll cut hedges and and devour branches that bear bad fruit. The same thing's going on here. He's, He's cutting off the disease from the land by taking out the sinful Israelites from the land. 
and almost all of them are sinful, so the land's going to be empty, desolate, a wasteland. And some people might think this is cruel, because if you read some stories of the exile, it's, it's quite horrible. And God promised these people this land, and, and so what gives, right? But we exist to obey. We are created to obey. So when we disobey, judgment is more than appropriate. And sometimes, in some cases, like we'll see for Israel, judgment can be a mercy. So God's not sending Isaiah to preach this message in hopes that they'll repent. We say that again. God is not sending Isaiah to preach this message so that the people will repent. That's not the hope here. Let me read verse 10 again. Just hear how it words it. This is so key. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy. Lest, that word lest, we don't use it much today, but it means so that they don't, to prevent, so that this doesn't happen. And blind their eyes so that they don't see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God knows this message won't lead to repentance. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to harden Israel's heart. It's fulfilling its purpose when it makes the people hard and blind and deaf and hateful, uh, hateful towards God. That is the point. And all of that so that they would surely go into exile and purge the land of their sin with no hope for a revival before that. So one question we might have after reading something like that is, Lord, are you just making people who want to follow you and want to be obedient in the land? Are you bending their arm to sin? You know, are you taking people who otherwise would have repented and, and stopping them before they can repent? No, that's not what's going on here. Right? We, sh- we shouldn't think that God is bending anybody's arm to sin. If, if we remember the first five chapters describing Judah's state, Israel wants to sin. Israel loves her sin. God's not making them do anything they don't want to do. They're only doing what they want to do, and they already hate God. Their hearts are already hard. They're already blind and dead. So there's nothing going on here against their will. And then to step back for a bit and just consider a text somewhere else, in contrast to these people who are making their own hearts hard and who are blind and deaf, Ezekiel 36, a little bit later of a prophet, ministering to the same people, right before the time of the exile, he gives a new covenant promise passage, and it describes a people of God. They're not blind, they're not deaf, they're not hardened or dull in heart. Their stony hearts that were stony and dull and hardened are now soft and receptive, you know, and like fingertips that can feel again, their hearts receive God's word, and they're sensitive to sin, and they naturally love the law of the Lord, and so they walk upright in it from the heart. And that's a far cry from the people that Isaiah is ministering to today. So what's the difference between the, the people who, who obey the same word of the Lord and the people who it makes hardened and hateful and, and blind? Here's the point. The word of God always does something. It, it never does nothing. It always does something to the hearer, and it always has an effect on the people. 
So to those who love God and have been given a new heart, the word of God acts kind of like a wrench, right? And it corrects them and they're receptive and, and they're put back on covenant relationship with God and they're put back on track and they obey the law of the Lord. And to the people who are already hardening their hearts, who love to sin, who God does not owe it to them to fix their hearts, just letting them do what they want to do, to those people, the same word of God will act kind of like a hacksaw, only severing them more from God and eventually rooting them out in a purifying way from the people of God. And so this is why Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God is powerful, and what it does depends on the recipient that it falls on. And so one thing we learn by this is that the word of God never needs changing. The word of God doesn't need to be changed or adapted. The heart needs to be changed. It's the heart that receives it differently, not the message being different. And so now we understand how, how God's word does the work, how it's always working, and in what circumstances it would work differently. But, but now we should get back on track to how it's doing the work in Isaiah chapter 6, what God is meaning for it to do to purge rebellious Israel through Isaiah. So now this section is the hope. So we saw the call. Isaiah was called. We saw the message and the response. He was given a, a judgment uh, ministry, and it would only harden the people who it should have softened. And that was on purpose. It's not a sad mistake. That's on purpose. And it seems hopeless. But now we're going to see some hope. So look at verse 13. Isaiah goes on to use this, this purging language. And though a tenth remain in it, so that means some Israelites were left during the first wave of exile. So remember, for, for Judah, the southern kingdom, there was two waves of exiles, right? The first wave took quite a few of the people, and then the second wave totally obliterated it, destroyed the temple, everything. And so though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. And that came to pass. It was purged again. We learn in Ezekiel 33, 21 to 33, Ezekiel, he's in exile at this point, but there's still some left in the land. And he finds out and he mourns that, no, now it's, it's totally done. The exile's complete. The temple is destroyed. The people of God are all taken away. So it seems pretty hopeless, right? But here's where the hope kicks in. and here, Here's where we can see the triumph of grace in this text. Continuing in, in verse 13. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. Felled means cut down, taken away. So like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So the analogy is like a, a massive forest fire that's come and purged Israel and it's burnt the last tenth even that was there. And this is the exile, purging the land of the sinners in the land, which was most of the people who wouldn't produce good fruit. So God destroys the diseased branches. And Isaiah, uh, in his time, uh, is prophesying about a time where, where during this exile, Israel is almost totally annihilated and it's seemingly hopeless, and all that's left is this tiny stump. But there's still a stump. There is still hope here. There is still something. And it's not just any stump. It's not just some random stump. It says the holy seed is its stump. And so Isaiah, when he was hearing this from God, and his hearers reading this after, any good Jew of the time reading scripture would have understood that seed language this way. The holy seed is its stump. They would have thought of the seed promised to Eve in the garden. 
you know, a serpent-crushing seed who would come one day and set the people back to Eden, or, or, or maybe the seed promised to Abraham, the seed that will bless many nations, or the seed promised to David of a king who would rule over God's people perfectly. So there's a lot of hope language here for the people of God. Now let's take a minute and step back and look at what we've covered so far. So Isaiah, he sees a a vision of God. Chris preached last week. And then he's purified by this God. Now he's set apart for the purposes of this God. He's given a message that is set up not to work the way that we think it should work, maybe. And the people are going to go into exile and all that will be left is this seed. And the the seed represents, if you read later on, the people who would survive the exile and eventually come back to the land and settle in the land again and rebuild another temple and continue this bloodline of Israel on to bring forth this promised seed. So how is God going to use this awful, sinful, rebellious nation to bring forth his purposes in the world? and bring forth the king and the serpent crusher that they would have been thinking of, well, he's going to purge Israel almost entirely. And then he's going to keep for himself a small amount of people who do serve and honor him, a remnant that that he made their hearts receptive. He chose them. They didn't choose him. And they'll return from exile and come to the land one day. And so that's Isaiah 6. That's all it tells us. It just leaves it there because the future hasn't happened yet. And so that's what the people are waiting for and expecting at this point. And that's pretty discouraging because Isaiah knows in his lifetime all he's going to expect to be able to see is is judgment. But there's that seed of hope, that triumph of grace there, that there is a holy seed because God has promised to his people to stay faithful to his promises. And you and I know on the other side of things that that holy seed did come that the people did come back to the land and they did eventually birth this Messiah, Jesus Christ, that the true seed of the woman, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. And now Jesus has come and he's, he's given us new hearts. So instead of like the people of Israel where we hear the word of God and we just harden more towards it and hate God more and more like we would if he left us, he's given us soft, flesh-like, receptive hearts that can hear and obey him and obey from the heart. And so everything was desolate, destroyed, and hopeless. But grace triumphed, and there was this small seed that grew into a plant, showing signs of life, and then eventually a plant into a whole vineyard rooted in Jesus Christ that that you and I take part in now through the vine of faith. Let me read Isaiah 27, 1 to 5. I think it puts this so beautifully. In that day, the Lord with his hand Oh, sorry. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that's in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper, and every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So Jesus slays the dragon. Jesus crushes the serpent. 
He creates a vineyard that's pleasant and kept by God. He tends to it night and day. He perseveres our souls. And even the rebellious thorns and briars that are in this vineyard are called to take hold of his protection, to make peace with him. God says it twice, make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So Emmanuel Baptist Church, if, if you have repented and, and believed in the gospel and you're, and you're trusting Christ alone for your salvation, you're in the vineyard, you're connected to the vine, and it says, I am not angry. Some translations say, I am not angry. I have no wrath. God has no wrath for you. You are purified better than Isaiah was, and you're free. But if you're still a rebel within the vineyard, you're coming to church, maybe with a friend, or maybe you've been coming for a long time, and you haven't totally submitted your life to Christ, you haven't repented of your hardness of heart and turned to him in faith, you're a thorn and a thistle within this vineyard, and right now, present tense, the wrath of God abides on you. The second, but, he calls you to take hold of his protection in Christ. Our God is not willing that any should perish, Right? He, he longs for you to take hold of his protection. That's why he repeats, let them make peace with me. He doesn't want to march on you and burn you up. He will because his justice requires, a, uh, requires it, but he's longing for you to come to him and repent and be grafted into the true vine and be part of the true vineyard and find life in him. But remember, when you, when you are saved, if you're saved or you're going to be saved, we're not just saved for the sake of being saved, like we've seen with Isaiah. God has work for us once we've been saved, right? And then after seeing God and understanding who he was and experiencing just a, a symbolic foretaste of his grace and mercy, nobody had to pull Isaiah's teeth to serve God and to go and speak for God. He just piped up and volunteered and did it. And he saw the partial now get this, in, in John chapter 12, verse 41, you don't have to flip there, but you should write it down. John 12, 41. John quotes this text that we've gone through in Isaiah 6 today, and he says this about Jesus. He says, Isaiah said these things when he saw him, Jesus, his glory, and spoke of him. So the one that Isaiah saw on the throne, high and lifted up, God Almighty, holy, 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 it wasn't just the Father, and then we have Jesus Christ, small g God, lowercase g God, at his feet. Jesus was on the throne. It was the Son of God, fully exalted. And like we saw with the us language earlier, there's, there's possibility for the Trinity being in unity there, but we know for certain from John that Jesus Christ was present, being worshipped by the seraphim as holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's vision was just a partial, partial picture of that. And now... We have the fullness of that in the incarnation, and we see that in the gospel. So how much clearer a picture of God do we have now through Jesus Christ, and how much more mercy have we received from the cross? The coal that purified Isaiah just pointed to what we've received the fullness of. We're on the other side of these new covenant promises. We've been given this soft, receptive heart. So if Isaiah shot up ready for action... Nobody had to pull his teeth. Nobody had to ask him. No one had to coerce him after seeing the partial EBC. How much more should we be ready to action to go serve our local church and to go serve the world as the local church now that we have the fullness of God beholden in Jesus' face in the Gospels? So God has given us a commission to go into all of the world and preach the Gospel to every creature 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we can, we can preach God's word and just God's word and just God's gospel, knowing that it will do the work. And he promises he'll be with us even until the end. And our, our gospel, our commission, is better and more glorious than the one that Isaiah was given because he was promised hardness of heart. He was promised no reception. But we are promised fruit from every tribe and nation. It's not something that the church has to get together and make work. We have to do the work, but we don't have to make it work. We just preach the Lord's word, and he has promised, because he is holy, 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 he is devoted to his purposes, that through us, with a better commission than Isaiah, and a fuller picture of God, and more motivation, and a, and a true gospel, we're promised to go and get a harvest of fruit. That's good fruit. That's receptive. That does see and hear, and has a soft heart from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So how do we get a clear view of God and a clear view of his mercy in the gospel to do this? Because that's what motivated Isaiah. I don't think Isaiah would have been so excited to volunteer unless he had seen God and seen his mercy, as we've seen. So the way we get that motivation today is to see the face of Jesus who reveals God clearly in the word of God. And just in your Bible that's on your lap, you can read about Isaiah's vision and marvel at it and think it's amazing. But the truth is, guys, when you look at Jesus through the word of God, through the gospels, through the epistles writing about him, you have a clearer view of God. You have a better vision of God, a more whole understanding of God than Isaiah could have had through any vision. So so be in the scriptures, but be careful because as we've seen today, One thing we've learned is that it's impossible to be indifferent to the scriptures. They never do nothing. So watch your heart when you're in the scriptures. What's it doing? Because it's not doing nothing, right? It's a lie that you can be indifferent and, and, and negligent to the scriptures. It always either gives life and obedience or it hardens and makes dull. So when you're in the word... Watch your heart and and pray to God, Lord, give me the kind of heart that's soft and receptive and that can hear your word and obey it because, Father, I know if you don't give me that kind of heart, I'm going to have a heart like Israel and this word is only going to make me harder in my sin and more hateful towards you. So watch the patterns in your life as you're in the word of God. Is it motivating you to serve? Be like Isaiah when you see God's glory better in the word of God. Here I am, Lord, send me. So daily devour the word of God so that you have a clear picture of him and his mercy to give you strength to carry out our great commission so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation as promised will bear fruit and worship Jesus, the risen king, forever and honor him from a soft heart that he has given us. Let's pray. Lord, You are more gracious than any of us will be able to comprehend. But we thank you, Lord, that we can go on in our lives every day, becoming more and more aware of your grace. And so, God, I pray as we see that in the gospel, as we see that in the face of Christ in the scriptures, that that would just fill our hearts to serve you and see the whole world come to the knowledge of God and ascend the hill of Zion and serve you, Father. God, I pray that when we are in the word, and Father, I pray that we are in the word, but when we are, Lord, 
Help us to watch our hearts, Lord, and do something to our hearts. Lord, we know if you don't do something, nothing's going to happen except hardness and hatred. So God, do a work in EBC as we receive your word through preaching, as we receive your word through personal devotionals, as we receive your word through the music we listen to, through the conversations we have. Would it transform us into servants who do not need to be coerced, but go because we've been given a better commission and a full gospel and a clear view of the face of God in Christ. Truly you have said, Jesus, if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. We thank you for your word that we can behold you in. And we pray these things for the sake of Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.